Ever wondered who and what is shaping Luxembourg? This is your Lux Unplugged podcast with your hosts, Adrian and Thierry. Hi, I'm Adrian. And I'm Thierry. Welcome back to another Lux Unplugged episode. This week, I'm talking to Claude Hitai, Research and Technology Associate at the Luxembourg Institute for Science and Technology, also known as LIST. Why did you invite Claudia to the show? Claudia is a renowned environmental policy specialist with a solid research background under her belt. So we've recorded the episode just a few days after the conclusion of the very publicized COP26 event, which brought nations back to the negotiation table to discuss carbon emission reductions and ensuing commitments. This also follows the publication of the recent IPCC report in August, which was widely covered and explained by Kim Schumacher in one of our previous episodes. Getting Claudia on the program was for me the natural course of action to not only provide context and explanations relating to the COP26 resolutions, this when it comes to climate adaptation and mitigation worldwide, but also to further detail what it means for a rich country like Luxembourg. That's indeed a very timely conversation to have with a climate specialist like Claudia. What can you give away at this stage? So I was very intrigued to get Claudia's impressions of the COP26 decisions and what her expectations were ahead of the event. One of the key points that struck me the most were that, unlike the previous COP conferences, the public was much more informed about the challenges linked to climate change and had better tools to evaluate the impact of such discussions at the world level. The other noteworthy point is the importance of finance in general and how essential it is for developed countries to provide development aid to emerging nations in order for them to move away from burning dirty fossil fuels such as coal and oil. And what are the implications for such a small country like Luxembourg? As listeners will hear in a few moments, there are plenty of opportunities for Luxembourg to become a role model for the rest of the world. Carbon emissions stemming from Luxembourg, as we all know, are one of the highest on a per capita basis globally. But the potential to cut them, thanks to bold initiatives and substantial innovation, is enormous. Here, Claudia is walking me through a number of them, which will further flesh out in a future episode. But now, without further ado, please enjoy my timely conversation with Claudia Hitai, Research and Technology Associate at the Luxembourg Institute of Science and Technology. Claudia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, before we kick off our conversation and dive into those extremely diverse and, and timely topics, we have a very established tradition here on the, on the show. Our audience and ourselves always like to know, you know who we're talking to. So in your own words, Claudia, how would you introduce yourself? I'll start with the fact that I was born in the United States to German parents, so I have dual citizenship. And as I've been told by my friends in the US, I have a German accent when I speak English. And my German relatives tell me that I have an American accent when I speak German. So um, I hope you don't hear my accent now. In any case, I attended a German international school in Washington, D.C., so I did my Abitur there. And then I studied economics and biology at Yale University. And from there, I had originally intended to continue studying development economics because I really wanted to improve the economic situation of people in the developing world. But I decided to study environmental policy instead because I, I think that so many of the issues in the developing world have their origin in the mismanagement of the environment. Off, I went to the UK for a master's in environmental policy, and then I returned to the US for 
a PhD in agricultural and, and resource economics. And um, straight off of my PhD, I began working as a research economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, where I my research really focused on many different things, uh, such as the effect of um, shale, oil and gas on agriculture or land use change on pollinator health. Or um, one of my favorites was greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. food system. And then in 2019, as a sort of Trump administration refugee, I came to Luxembourg and I joined the Luxembourg Institute of Science and Technology, where I'm a researcher in the Life Cycle Sustainability Assessment Group. And I have to say, I'm really glad to be here in Luxembourg and at LIST uh, in particular, because I like um, assessing systems or products from the, the life cycle perspective. And I mean, Europe just really has a, a high standard of living. It's really enjoyable to be here. I guess to, to summarize, I feel like my research is still all over the map, but this is actually an advantage when it comes to research on decarbonization, because um, it's a subject where you you really have to look at the entire economy and all of the actors. So we have our carbon footprint, we have our target of net zero, and you know you realize that we need to do everything under the sun, really, in every sector, using every actor in order to fully decarbonize. And what made you think that going for an academic path, you know, um, as opposed to you know being actually, you know, working in a um private sector context and so forth. So what made you choose to go to go for the academic um, solution or the academic um, yeah, path? Because I understand you also got yeah, your PhD and so forth. So you're very much research oriented. So out of interest, what was that the, what was the rationale behind this? I really did always enjoy school. And so going for the PhD was kind of a non-brainer for me. Uh, environmental economics is a fascinating topic because you know fundamentally the environmental problems that we have today are the result of externalities or environmental resources not being properly priced into the system. I mean, what this means is that if polluting is free, you will pollute. And the solution to most of these problems is thus quite simple. Get rid of the externality, make the decision makers feel the full impact of their activities, and you do this by putting a price on pollution. And I think when it comes to climate change, this is really challenging because you're dealing with a global problem. And so far, we have no mechanism beyond voluntary action to you know, force nations to adhere to a certain decarbonization trajectory. So I think as an environmental economist, I'm really drawn to the topic of climate change and global decarbonization. Yeah, we've heard the same argument from uh, Kim Schumacher, so a peer of yours, who's appeared no, several times on the podcast, saying that you know, sadly enough, he he chose um, the envi- environmental sciences as a, as a topic of interest, uh, but at the same time, he was hoping that things would go in the other direction, but they haven't. So, um, so I can certainly relate to that in terms of people that we've talked to. But now you were saying, you know, it's um, you know, talking about external. Uh, negative externalities, so so to speak, and, and all the, the efforts that leaders worldwide uh, have to make. Less than a week after the end of the COP26, so it's very, very much a uh, a major event uh, in terms of, uh, you know, worldwide coordination and, and 
in terms of reducing those carbon emissions. So um, as you probably know, and as the audience certainly know, um, it was not widely expected. But at the same time, you know, we came out with the mixed feedings because we were not, we were not, we were expecting like more firmer commitments and so forth. But from your perspective, Claudia, as you are uh, very much specialized in, in that field, what were your expectations and how would you kind of summarize this, uh, this event? I'll admit that I had high expectations. I think because I feel this great sense of urgency and I hope that everyone else was feeling the same way. And, you know, as a U.S. citizen, it was also really gratifying to know that the U.S. would be there again at the negotiating table with a renewed willingness to play their part. So I think in the run-up to the conference, um, there was a general excitement and, and buzz, so to speak. And it felt like the public and this also politicians were generally more aware, more in tune to the urgency of climate action than ever before. So I really thought, okay, this is it. And um, I think I had this unrealistic expectation that we would walk out of there with a clear plan on how we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, uh, 2040, 2050. But I guess to, to look at the positive side, I, I can say that I was pleasantly surprised by the quality of the reporting on the conference and climate change in general. So I think it was kind of a joint education that we all went through. And it started, of course, with the publication of the IPCC's sixth assessment report in August with the message that we're heading towards a future of unprecedented climate change caused by humans and that we can avoid it only by dramatically reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. And you mentioned Kim Schumacher. He actually talks specifically about this report in a, a recent Lux Unplugged episode. So the audience, I really recommend listening to that episode if you haven't already. So in terms of, I guess, reporting more generally, um, I still, I love reading the Washington Post. And they had a great piece on uh, detecting methane leaks from pipelines using satellites and how that information can sometimes contradict the emissions reporting of individual countries. And um, as an example, they, they showed that uh, natural gas leaks in Russia really contradict what that country says is actually being emitted. Um, and then on this side of the pond, The Guardian had a great series on what the climate change disaster will look like in 2050 in different parts of the world. I think for the first time you had lots of information out there um, in a really visually appealing way. And I had the feeling that at a minimum, the COP26 would refocus the conversation on climate change and decarbonization. What would be your advice to, you know, to people, leading countries, if they were to, you know, on the one hand, reconcile what the developing nations have got in terms of energy consumption needs and and on the other hand developed nations that have actually got that are more advanced obviously in the process but uh, they they also they also need to kind of help those, those developing nations to get to a common denominator so what would be your your steps we know that mitigating climate change is expensive and then in developing countries you have in particular this kind of direct trade-off between lifting your citizens out of poverty and reducing greenhouse gas emissions and in developed economies, we have similar concerns over how some of our climate change policies will be affecting more vulnerable households. So I think that one of the most important things to consider is we have in our negotiating um, toolbox as a developed country, what we can do is 
help developing nations address mitigation and adaptation financially. Accelerating efforts towards the phase out of coal power and fossil fuel subsidies. And I can say here that this is actually the first time coal power and fossil fuels were ever explicitly mentioned in such an agreement. So this was already a win. But um, in the last minute, the phrase um, was changed in three ways. So phase out was turned into phase down, and then coal power was qualified as unabated coal power, and then fossil fuel subsidies were qualified with inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. And um, I guess it, it was not just China and India who called for this change, they were speaking on behalf of a group of other developing countries. And you can really understand their concern. In developing countries in particular, mitigating climate change comes with a direct cost to their citizens now, a cost that is much larger uh, than the cost to developed economies. So there's this real trade-off. And I guess to put numbers on this, uh, the US and Luxembourg, they have CO2 emissions of about 14 tons of CO2 uh, per capita per year. And you compare that to uh, about half of that in China. So China is at 7.4 and in India it's 1.8 and in Kenya and many other uh, developing countries it's you know less than one. So it's 0 0.3, 0 0.2, 0 0.1. So really, I mean, it's a question of what is fair. So we and the developed economies have benefited from unrestrained greenhouse gas emissions for so long, even to this day, higher per capita emissions we have contributed disproportionately to the climate change problem, so it's only fair that we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions more quickly than the developing world. But um, at the same time, I mean, we just can't continue as we are now. So even in developing countries, we really can't allow any more new coal power plants to come online. So I think this is also why the qualifier of unabated coal power was added. So what they mean here is the technology of carbon capture and storage, but uh, without the right incentives, a new coal power plants coming online today will not have CCS technology installed. I mean, they may be CCS ready, but you know that doesn't mean much if in these first years, they'll be spewing out CO2. CO2 that will stay in the atmosphere for you know, thousands of years. So this is a real problem. You mentioned earlier, so you are uh, part of the, the list, the Luxembourg Institute of Science and uh, Technology. Uh, I've seen, uh, I've seen that it's, it's quite a heavily staffed uh, institution. Uh, but in that sense, you know, just, just in a nutshell, how would you describe the mission then of the list that you're part of? So I'm really glad to be at LIST. So LIST is a research and technology organization which means that you know we do a lot of research similar to um, a university, but in contrast to a university, you know whose goal is to teach and publish that information, our goal is to put that research into practice. So um, we file a lot of patents, we have spin-offs, you know we collaborate with industry, and um, our yeah our research falls into three main categories. So materials, science, IT, and the environment, which is the department I'm in. And we work with the government a lot too. I think that um, when, you, when you look at the immensity of the task ahead of us, 
you know, reducing our emissions by 90% or even you could say almost 100% within the next 30 years, we cannot achieve that without innovation. And so um, this is where, where LIST and other research institutes come in. In some sectors, we already know what we're doing. You know, I'm thinking mainly about renewable power or electric vehicles. It's kind of clear what lies ahead and we have a path, but um, we need a lot of innovation to bring down emissions from air travel, you know, long distance trucking where uh, you know, electric vehicles don't really work or the steel and cement production. So these are things that um, a developed economy like, like Luxembourg can really contribute to. I think, um, I guess I can be kind of self-serving here. I can say that I think LIST needs more funding. You know, this is, LIST has a real role to play uh, when it comes to innovation and making the transition happen because without that, I don't think we can meet this kind of ambitious goal of reaching net zero by 2050. Yeah, so I think uh, in, indeed, so given the the challenges that we're facing, I think there's never enough budget for for such uh, institutions promoting a, a greater sustainability agenda. But you know, I think what what I'm most interested in actually for the audience and uh, to illustrate what Luxembourg has been doing, and, and and this has also been supported by the list where where you've been also part of those initiatives, but would you have any um, examples to walk us through, you know, things that uh, that are currently being implemented by the Ministry of the Environment or future projects that that actually qu- are quite unique to Luxembourg, given given the, you know, the forward-looking stance that, we, that you want to have or that the LIST wants to have in the context of climate change? One of my favourite projects at LIST that is, you know, initiated by the government and that's actually going on right now is Luxembourg in transition. And this is led by the Ministry of Energy and Spatial Planning. Um, It's actually quite unique um, in the sense that we've had, you know, Paris and Geneva have been the only two other cities that have done such an exercise. And um, I think the way it's run is also quite nice. We have several teams from all over Europe competing um, with the goal to design a strategy for Luxembourg to decarbonize by 2050 in a resilient way. So meaning we should take into account um, enhancing biodiversity as well. And so for me, this was really the first time I was called upon as a researcher to design a decarbonization strategy for a whole country and most importantly for all sectors of the economy. Um, I think that as researchers, too often we're kind of working on something very specific, like, um, for example, decarbonizing steel production. And so you don't really know by how much the steel sector will need to decarbonize in relation to all other sectors. So you never really have this overarching view. And I think, you know, this is something that's missing from, say, you know, government employees, if they're in the agriculture ministry or energy ministry or environment ministry, you know, you work on your task and you kind of lose an overall picture. Like, what do we actually need to do to reach net zero by 2050? And when you take this view, you know, it's mind boggling and you really spring into action because you realize, holy smokes, we need to do everything we possibly can. And so this was really very important for me to, you know, do this research and, and figure that out. And it's really um, 
motivated me and also influenced how I talk about climate change to, you know, people I meet on the street. This is really important to me. Um, and it's also influenced how I talk about climate change uh, when, you know, I talk to my friends and family or um, we also have a big um, push to educate students in high schools because I think it's really important that we all know what we need to do and the role that we play. I think we could dedicate a separate episode to um, concrete action points on how everyone can uh, um, can do something and, and do their bit uh, to, to you know to make it a more a more sustainable environment. I think, but in, here in the interest of time, uh, I, I just wanted to ask you a, a final question, uh, Claudia. You moved to the country in uh, in 2019, if I remember correctly, and and you've been there for for some time now. What are the things that you actually like the most in, in Luxembourg? And, and based on what you've seen so far, what would you change if you had a chance? So I like that Luxembourg is at times quite audacious. You know, so they have, they made public transportation free. They banned glyphosate, which is a, an herbicide that's used in agriculture. And so, um, I mean, sometimes these kind of grand projects are not that well thought out. Like for me personally, I think that banning glyphosate may not have been such a great move because it means that farmers are more likely to till their land, which releases CO2 and, and nitrous oxide, another powerful greenhouse gas from the soil. So it comes with this trade-off. But on the whole, it means that Luxembourg isn't afraid of being a trailblazer. And this is something we need. This is something we need desperately. And I think one of the things that I would change in Luxembourg uh, would be, you know, what I mentioned now on my point on education, you know, we need to make this a national priority. We need to change school curricula and we need to educate um, everyone who's already completed school. And then the other point is we need to tackle financed emissions, right? So we need to align our fuel taxes with those of our neighbors. Fuel tourism right now contributes 37% to our territorial carbon footprint. 37%. I mean, this is an insane amount. And the logistics sector is a result of this. So we have trucks coming from far away to refuel here. Luxembourg became a huge cargo hub because it's so cheap to refuel. And I used to think that this was not such a big deal at a European level, but I was wrong. Trucks that refuel in Luxembourg can go all the way to Romania before they have to refuel. So our low fuel taxes here in Luxembourg are preventing the trucking sector, not just of Luxembourg, but the whole of Europe from shifting to rail freight. So even though we are a small country, we, have, we play a big role and we need to increase our fuel taxes pronto in order to incentivize the logistics sector to decarbonize. So there are all sorts of kind of detailed policy adjustments that we can take uh, to make decarbonization happen and to really do our duty as a rich, developed country to help the world decarbonize to net zero by 2050. Well, on that very positive note and, of course, very encouraging message that you just uh, emitted, Claudia, I would like to thank you for taking the time to speak to me today and joining the show for for that hour and uh, of course based on all those topics that we've just discussed I very much look forward to having you back on the program to discuss uh, other topics especially like those actionable items that uh, 
that listeners can take away and actually apply in their daily lives for them to uh, to contribute to a better world. So thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for listening to the Lux Unplugged podcast. Please share this podcast with friends and family and leave us a review on iTunes. Also, please don't forget to visit our website, luxunplugged.com. And see you next time. Thank you.